0: Hi, this is Andy Chu. Today I'm here with Lisa Koskarian, PhD. Lisa is a clinical psychologist with over 30 years of experience. And we are here today to dive into the world of PTSD. Welcome, Lisa.
1: Hi, Andy. It's good to be here with you today.
0: So PTSD fascinates me. When I was a child, there was a fire in my house. It was an old house, and there was no fire alarm. But I remember my sister-in-law yelling, fire, fire, and I jumped out of bed and ran out of the house in my pajamas. (laughs) Soon, the house went up in flames. For at least a year after that, every time I felt heat, I became frightened. What's interesting here is that during the fire, I didn't actually feel any heat because I got out so quickly. A few days ago, I read an article by a psychologist who said that people can get PTSD just from watching the Capitol riot on TV. This reminds me of my house fire, where I didn't see, feel, smell any fire. But the idea of being in danger haunted me. In the case of the riot, people saw it on TV, but they were not in physical danger. Yet they can still get traumatized. So these two incidents suggest to me that PTSD has a lot to do with the idea of being in danger and not just the perception of danger with our senses. What do you think, Lisa?
1: Um, Absolutely. I think that um, anybody who has experienced any type of overwhelming emotionally traumatic event can be re-triggered by any kind of stimuli, whether it's visual olfactory um or or any other kind of sensorial um uh kind of discerning of that stimuli it can be their their symptoms of the trauma their fears and their anxiety can become more acute in the moment that they are um re-experiencing stimuli associated with that event and that can also include nightmares it can include you know even having a nightmare um, uh, they can ex- re-experience all of the symptoms of um, that they experienced in the original event of the trauma. So watching the Capitol riots could very well re-trigger people who have experienced or witnessed any version of violence um, or a threat to their life or a threat to their
0: loved one's lives. So you're saying that the PTSD for many folks don't actually start... At the riot, it is actually a trigger for things that have happened in the past.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that people who are present, um, who are present at the riot, certainly could have been and were traumatized. Um, I think that for people who watched the riot um, on, you know, on television or even heard about it or read about it. Um, Most likely, if they are experiencing symptoms of trauma, it's because they're being re-triggered and they're re-experiencing based on a past experience of trauma.
0: So at what point do you think people should seek help?
1: Uh, That's a really good question. Um, I think that a person who's been re-triggered with PTSD symptoms, um, uh, just by nature of the circumstance, has been living with PTSD symptoms for, you know, as long as um, uh, the original trauma occurred. So it could be months, years that they've been living with this. And so um, it's always a judgment call when those symptoms get reactivated as to, okay, is it time to, you know, sort of up my, um, intensify my seeking of help and receiving of help. I guess I would think of Maybe one helpful measurement tool is what is the functional impairment? So for people Mm -hmm. who are then re-experiencing repeated um, nightmares that last, you know, more than a a couple of weeks, let's say, um, which is interfering with their sleep and therefore interfering with their concentration and all the other Faculties that people need in order to feel um, safe going about their daily life, but also being able to attend to work. Um, Is there heightened arousal um, happening multiple times a day? Meaning like they're having kind of like a jump scare or a memory or an avoidance of um, or a fearful response or avoidance of kind of daily stimuli that's causing them to be unable to focus, for the most parts, um, on the things they need to be focusing on. I think that if they're starting to experience a more acute, you know, uh, series of symptoms like that that are functionally impairing them, then it's definitely time to get help.
0: Is it possible for people to have PTSD and don't even know they have it?
1: Mm, that's another. So, for big example.
0: Question. Um, You know, I had a client who who survived the Cambodian genocide. She was a Chinese woman, and um, she would have these very strange dreams that she didn't know the meaning of, but they would terrify her. Um, So her therapist thought that those uh, nightmares came from the traumatic event, but those dreams have nothing to do, at least facially, uh, have have anything to do with the traumatic event. So is it possible for people to be traumatized and not know it? Mm
1: -hmm. I think, uh, Andy, that's a great example because I think, um, first of all, depending on a person's cultural or, you know, kind of country of origin background, uh, these kinds of symptoms and experiences may be defined differently, differentially, just depending on where a person is from. depending on what a person's background is, they may or may not have crossed paths with anyone who had ever defined their symptoms as um, problematic. They may just feel like, oh, this is just me. This is just my life. This is just, you know, people from my background don't complain about these things or they, we Mm -hmm. don't seek help for these sorts of things. This is just something I have to deal with. So I think there's, for for those reasons, I think there there are countless people who have wouldn't even consider that they have any kind of disorder going on. Um, and then I, I and then there's people who maybe do live um, within cultures where where PTSD is a thing and it is something that is maybe widely discussed. But I think sometimes people. Um, just don't realize a light bulb doesn't go off for them unless they have somebody to validate their experience. And then it kind of brings it all together. I think it can be also sort of threatening in a way. It can be kind of scary to think that they might be walking around with a disorder. They'd almost rather just grin and bear it and just sort of buckle down and plow through life because they don't want their lives to be further disrupted. So they might even avoid Going to get help because they or getting a diagnosis, but then once they do, I think people generally feel very relieved. They feel like, oh, there's, there's, um, you know, there's validity to what I'm experiencing, and, and it's real, and it is, uh, it's universally distressing, and I'm not all alone with this. Um, so I think so what, that yeah, there's hmm. yeah, go ahead.
0: What makes something hmm. a disorder? as opposed to, oh, this is just something that haunts me and I deal with it and I go on with my life. What makes, what makes a memory, a set of feelings a disorder?
1: Well, it's kind of like a, um, a similar criteria. It depends on what criteria you're using. I mean, I, I feel like a person's subject, subjective experience of distress over time is enough to legitimize a person's experience of distress. But technically, disorder is um, similar to the criteria that is used in the medical profession, which is that, you know, in the mental health profession, we have the diagnostic and statistical manual, which describes different, quote unquote, disorders, which um, have a consistent set of symptoms and experiences that a person could even look at themselves and say, oh, do I have eight out of those 12 and have I had them for the amount of period of time that people with this disorder have. And I'm not suggesting people should self-diagnose, I'm just saying that um, there is an objective way to validate and verify that a person has a you know, a mental health disorder.
0: I was diagnosed with a depression when I was in law school. And before being diagnosed, I was just moody. <laughs> uh, but once I was diagnosed, now I have a system to support me, right? I have my therapist, I have my psychiatrist to um, monitor meds, I have this whole literature of studies to validate. So so to me, it's so important to seek help, to seek treatment, because you don't want to just be, you know, out there alone, feeling alone. Um, Now, a lot of PTSD um, literature that I read talks about this one life-threatening event, right? yeah but racism can also be life-threatening I mean look at um, African Americans in our society you know I heard that driving black is a is a crime right yeah while black so yeah. can racism actually be a, a trigger or a cause for PTSD what do you think
1: yes um, uh, I totally agree with that and I think that um, I think that you help Establish an idea that we can move beyond more traditional ideas about what can be what can constitute trauma, and I think that in different um, contexts, that trauma can show up all sorts of ways. And I think it's often the population themselves who can help highlight and and sort of validate. No, we actually have the experience of going out and our lives being threatened every single day. And so yes. You specifically said, can it be the cause of retriggering, or uh, or as a primary trauma? And I think it, I think those kinds of experiences can absolutely be both. Um, uh, for example, an experience of repeated discrimination, repeated rejection based on what one's physical appearance is—that is, that is um, rejected by the you know the person, the commu- the surrounding community. Let's say. Uh, I think that can be traumatic because it can lead a person to feel like, can I even succeed? Can I even support myself? Will I get a job that I can keep because I keep being discriminated against or I keep being treated unfairly or I keep being, people keep looking at me in a way like, uh, you know, like I've come from, you know, some other planet or something instead of being part of, you know, that sort of outsider feeling marginalization can certainly be traumatic,
0: and that's what's happening with Asian Americans r- when they are blamed for the COVID.
1: Yes, that's another very, very um, current and relevant example of um, anyone who is Asian or Asian American or looks Asian or Asian American, um, if they're, you know, if they're at all kind of paying attention to how they're being treated, they're you know, unless they block it all out. And some, and even if you do block it out, even if you do sort of like, I just got to go about my business and not pay attention to what people are, you know, how people are responding to me, it's still there. And that threat is real. And people read news stories and hear about people being um, verbally and physically attacked uh, just as a result of being or looking Asian. And that is traumatic.
0: One thing I read about... Um trauma is this idea um, called um, post-traumatic growth. So the idea, or, um, the idea is positive psychological change experienced as a result of adversity and other challenges in order to rise to a higher level of functioning. Um, hmm. traumatic growth, post-traumatic growth involves life-changing psychological shifts in thinking and relating to the world. That contribute to a personal process of change that's deeply meaningful. I already was like, wow. <laughs> so um, how could how could we encourage these positive changes and minimize the negative? And should we? Because is there actually actual value for the mind to relive the terror?
1: Um. I think that with any, I think it's a, a really uh, potentially very useful positive reframe on a, on traumatic experiences. Uh, the only caveat I would say is that some people just don't feel capable of using their trauma as a positive experience. One has to be careful how they talk about it. Uh, you know, there are many who would feel like there's just absolutely no way I'm going to ever think of this as positive. And, you know, and of course you're, what you suggested there and what you shared isn't about saying, oh, the traumatic event was positive. No, we, you know, that it's never positive to go through trauma, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like if somebody comes in and like, pulls everything out of your closet and throws it all on the floor and you're really irritated and upset and you're like, I'll never be able to, you know, put it all back together. And I think what you just described is the idea that, okay, well, this is, let's take this as an opportunity. All right. Something terrible has happened and you're feeling distress about it, but maybe we can put things back together in a way that's even stronger and more highly organized and that will fortify you, uh, for future life challenges so that you feel more equipped the next time you either feel triggered or something upsetting happens, that you'll be in a better position to cope with it.
0: I had a flood in my house, and it destroyed some of my carpet. It was very stressful because, you know, the renovation people have to be in my house for three, four days, canceling in and out. You know, we have to remove a lot of furniture and things. But one thing that one good thing came out of it was that it required me to change the old carpet. But
1: I, I like that example, uh, and, and of course you would say, "I wish this never happened." You know, it's not like you're saying, "Oh, I'm so glad this flood happened," because then yeah, I am to I'm get so the carpet. That's not, you know, that's not the idea. But it's more like, "Okay, <sighs> this did happen." It's first of all mm-hmm. accepting. It's sort of like this going through the stages of grief. I think that um, accepting trauma or accepting a distressing event is, um, requires a person to some extent to go through some of the stages of grief, and that includes acceptance, which is what you did. You said, okay, this happened, and, uh, and now I can perhaps, instead of kind of wallowing in what an unfortunate situation this is, I can see it as an opportunity to make things better.
0: How um. would how someone reframe the capital riot?
1: Okay, that's a good that's a good question. I think um, an example of reframing it is once again acknowledging this is horrific, uh, this is deeply disturbing, um, very 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 upsetting and. Uh, one reframe would be, and I need to accept that um, Americans uh, are more enraged and more violently distressed about their political positions than I realized, which I think is what um, one of the shocking parts of the Capitol riots. Um, I think that they also, people also thought that uh, our government was somehow invulnerable, that our democracy was invulnerable. And I think to reframe it is to say, all right, I didn't realize this. I didn't realize how vulnerable we were. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize that even like on a physical level that mm-hmm. the Capitol building could be stormed in this way. And, and the opportunity here is to kind of update one's idea about reality, about current mm-hmm. sociopolitical cultural reality and I think when people are more equipped with the the current realities they're in a much better position to um to figure out well how am I going to cope with this then you know because then they know what they're dealing with like oh now I know now I realize what the situation is maybe they do like what I've been one of the things I've been doing is a lot of background reading and just sort of how did this all you know Mm -hmm. what is the history of this rage and and organizations that support these kinds of, um, uprisings. And, um, you know, I chose my readings, but people might choose any array of readings or material that will help fortify or help them understand better how these sorts of things happen. I think that when a person gets a greater sense of mastery, even in the, even in the, um, context of just understanding something better, they can Mm -hmm. feel a bit calmer about it. So that's one way I would think about reframing.
0: I think that's a great way. Uh, I think that's a great way because you're saying, at least to me, you're saying, yes, it it was a horrible event, but it also prompted us to learn more about other people, people with different opinions. I think to me that that understanding is so important. Um, I remember one time I was in a bakery um, when we were still going to offices. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And... um, I asked for a particular chocolate cookie in the the glass case. And the the baker, the woman said, oh, um, why do you want that one? And I said, well, because that one looks most fresh. I want the freshest cookie. And she became unhappy. I I could see her face darkened. And instead of feeling like um, me, instead of me feeling... um, put off or unhappy. I asked, what's going on? Does it bother you that I asked for that cookie? And she explained, you know, we sell all these cookies. If everyone just asked for a particular cookie, what are we going to do with the other cookies? We will never be able to sell them. So I understood her point of view.
1: Well, it's a, first of all, it's an example of you getting curious about another person's experience rather than just keep it rather than not asking about your observation. Um, It's about you being curious. It's about you then asking. And then it's about the possibility of having a little bit or a lot of empathy for the other person. You know, like you said, the operating term that you used earlier is it's an opportunity to learn about other people who have different points of view. And I know that can be really difficult because other people's points of view can be very, very offensive and even threatening. Or they can feel threatening. Um, but I like your example because you're saying, I, you know, I didn't feel threatened by asking. I didn't think I was endangering anybody by asking the question, you know, the worst that could have happened is she says, you know, I don't feel like answering you, (laughs) but she did answer.
0: I love this idea of, um, you know, reframing, um, unfortunate events into, uh, opportunity to understand, to learn. So... Sometimes people say to me, okay, I know I don't feel well. I acknowledge it. It could be PTSD or it could be depression or anxiety. But they say that they don't want to rest. They don't want to take time off from work, even though their therapists or their doctors recommend it because they're afraid that if they stay home and have nothing to do, they will actually get worse. What do you say to patients who don't want to rest? They just want to keep working and they are afraid that if they get a moment of free time of resting at home, their medical condition, their psychological condition would get worse.
1: I think those fears are, uh, you know, as always, anything that a person expresses as something they're concerned about, it's, le- it's valid, it's legitimate, um, it's not necessarily true in terms of like, that's not necessarily what's going to happen. So I'd first of all want to thoroughly explore what their fears are, what the basis of their fears are, and then get back to balancing out their fears with, and how long do you think this current circumstance is sustainable? I I use terms like, you know, something's going to give, you know, Mm. and I'd rather you choose to take a leave than it being chosen for you. By virtue of not being able to function. And, you know, I don't I don't want to scare people, but you know, if they're scared about taking time off, I want to point out other dangers and other um, elements that they should also be focusing on if they're thinking about what they're afraid of. Nobody wants to feel more out of control. And it is more out of control if a person just keeps going and then they experience um, on top of their symptoms. Um, the negative consequences of not, of failing, basically not being able to keep up with, um, either their, just their daily responsibilities and, or their work responsibilities being fired or, Mm. you know, having a partner break up with them because, you know, they don't understand and, um, they say, you're not, you know, you're not engaged anymore, that sort of thing.
0: Um, if I have a family member or a good friend who oh, I, I, I'm like, okay, he's smiling he's down into a crisis, what can I do? How do I bring up the subject with that person?
1: And, you know, here it's a person-by-person person situation because some everybody has their styles, and if you know your family member, then then you kind of know what would make them feel most comfortable or what they're going to be most kind of self-conscious about. Um, and then also with the back taking into consideration, the back rock, excuse me, of, does this person ever talk about things like this within their family or their culture or whatever it is. But all that said, I think it's, I think one always leads with empathy in the situation. Um, Not just, I'm concerned about you. I think sometimes that can be off-putting even because a person's Mm -hmm. like, what do you mean you're concerned about me? You know, that can feel sort of distancing in a way. And I I know Mm -hmm. that it's often said with very good intent. Um, But I think it's important to come Can I talk with you about something? And then stay with, I've noticed. And then you stick with behavioral um, observations. I've noticed these things. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you've noticed them too or if those things are... Um, or if you're feeling that those things are problematic for you, and just kind of leave it, you know, leave it with your observations, and then give them space to have their own kind of description or um, commentary about what it is that you've observed. And that will also give you a sense of, okay, can we go in deeper? Because they might say, Oh, yeah, actually, I have noticed those things. You're the first person who said, you know, something, or they might just say, Oh, yeah, it's no big deal. And they might kind of brush it away, and that gives you the idea of, okay, I don't think this person's ready to have a conversation with me about this, but at least you've planted a seed.
0: This noticing is empathy. This noticing is is a type of love. Um, So I love this idea of just saying, I notice. Um, It's so so practical and so effective.
1: I think it Uh, is another term is recognition. Recognition, yes. Yes. People want, I mean, sometimes people think of recognition like, oh, you got an award for because of your hard work, but recognition can be even much more mundane and, and just as powerful, which is just simply recognizing, oh, I saw a look on your face. People, I think, I think there's a uh, absolute dearth in our, you know, in our society of people just simply recognizing other people's experience, or at least what they notice about other people's experience
0: yeah and I think I think sometimes what people want is just to be recognized and noticed. They don't want to be they don't want to be showered with <laughs> compliments. They don't want to go into a room and everybody is like, "Oh my God, it's you, So great, you know you're wonderful and this and that.
1: Sometimes we get away from simplicity. We get away from we, we think we have to do something fancy or flowery for another person. A person right. with, you know, bringing us back to PTSD, which does, as we were talking about earlier, intersect with racism. The simple act of, uh, I noticed that you looked uncomfortable when we walked into that restaurant. Did something happen?
0: Right.
1: Versus like, well, that- oh, my gosh, are you, you know, do you feel like <laughs> there's racism here or, <laughs> you know, that... Like sometimes we try to like lay it on thick and that actually ends up feeling more obtrusive to the other person. And it, it kind of like drowns out their experience, um, which as you as we're talking about, um, the most important part of which is just that simple recognition or noticing. I noticed something. Do you feel like sharing what happened there?
0: And that's how we can also show empathy to oneself right so I would say oh you know I noticed lately that I feel very uncomfortable when I walk into this shop with that person what's going on what's going on with me you know am I is this some sort of trigger for me or I noticed that I've been having these dreams and I want to talk to someone about it and just staying curious just and noticing with that curiosity Mm -hmm. That's empathy, and it's very yeah. for oneself.
1: And it's think that oneself, like you said. Yeah,
0: and that's how I think that we can fight PTSD. Okay, well, thanks so much for being here with us, Lisa. This has been enlightening to me, and I hope to the listeners as well. Any parting words?
1: Well, you're very welcome, Andy, and I think that our conversation is an example of how um, a person... Uh, who's not even in the mental health field can have, uh, generate, co-generate really important ideas um, together uh, that could be really helpful to other people. So um, thank you for uh, having this conversation with me. I feel like I learned a lot too.
0: (laughs) We'll do it again. (laughs) All right. Thank you.